Mealtime inspiration. It's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over thirty thousand mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over six hundred dollars each week. You can also save up to one dollar off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the Parker's Pensies podcast. I'm your host, Parker Setacase. I've got a couple degrees in uh, advanced degrees, I guess, in theology, and I'm working on another in philosophy of religion. And throughout my time in my studies, I've had a lot of awesome conversations with really sharp people, but unfortunately, I haven't recorded them. And so they are lost in the sands of time, or some of them are up here. But the goal of this podcast is to repersonate some of those conversations and then to have new ones to record them and then to share them with you so you get to learn as I learn. I really love thinking about cool stuff so you get to come think with me. Um, I love having uh, really fantastic guests on to talk about fascinating ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. And so today we're going to be talking in the world of, of apologetics, but we're going to be getting into just a lot of really cool philosophy and Christian theology as well. Uh, we're going to be talking with Gavin Ortland again, Dr. Gavin Ortland, And this time we're going to be talking about his new book, Why God Makes Sense in a World That Doesn't, The Beauty of Christian Theism. Gavin has a really cool approach to apologetics, and he he's reading the right people, which is awesome. You can see in the footnotes. And I was telling him off air, I'm so pumped that they're footnotes, not endnotes. Um, but before we jump in with Gavin, I want to thank everyone over on Patreon. You guys are really making this podcast happen. I seriously appreciate it. The quality of uh, at least the video and audio is going up and up. Uh, hopefully the content is as well. But uh, that's a, a really big part. Uh, I, I have to thank my, my patrons for that. So if you have benefited from this podcast, please consider becoming a, a patron, a Patreon patron. You can find the link in the description. And when you go over to my Patreon page, you can find all sorts of cool stuff there. Stickers and mugs and... There's a secret book giveaway that has to be kind of secret now, I, I think. Um, just go to Patreon and you'll find out about that. Um, so I, I seriously appreciate you guys. Another way is to subscribe on YouTube and leave me a five-star review and comment on Apple Podcasts. Uh, above and beyond, another way, if you wanted to talk with me, you can leave me a comment and you can uh, maybe leave a comment for Gavin as well. I'll tell you about how you can find his YouTube page and you can go over there and talk with him. Uh, or you can join Parker's Pensies Ponciers. A Facebook group, and um, you can talk with some of my other guests in there. You can ask your questions about various episodes, and um, yeah, who knows? Maybe they'll respond to your stuff. That'd be awesome. So without further ado, let's pull Dr. Gavin Ortland in. Gavin, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast, man. Hey, thanks for having me. Been looking forward to it. Yeah, seriously, me too, man. Ever since we, uh, we talked last, uh, I don't know if it was on my podcast or on your YouTube channel, um, but I heard about this book and I was really stoked for it. Um, again, that's why God makes sense in a world that doesn't, um, Gavin, as we jump in here, man, why, what's, what's the impetus for this book? Like why this book, uh, and, and why now? Yeah, it would be really two things. One was just personal fascination. Um, I just was kind of looking for a new project. I've always loved philosophy. I actually kind of enjoy reading philosophy even more than theology in some ways. And uh, I'd had a few other projects that were done, and this was December 2018. I was at a bookstore, and I saw there were copies of several of the New Atheist books, and I just began to get drawn into this area, and I just thought it's so fun, you know, to have a new project, to learn new ways. And um, so part of it has been that, and then watching YouTube debates about the existence of God and other things, and just getting pulled a little bit into those conversations. And then secondly, it would just be, I really think a lot of people are deconstructing right now or rethinking deep questions. Uh, there's a lot of disillusionment, a lot of cynicism. Um, I've had a lot of friends deconstruct their faith. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, giving a case for here's the basics, uh, 
what I come to at the end of the book is the existence of God and the resurrection of Christ mm-hmm. and giving people a good, uh, hopefully, you know, some good reasons to believe in those things. That's not to be assumed right now. A lot of people are rethinking and those can be two helpful spots to kind of start rebuilding from. Yeah, that's really helpful. So uh, in the book, you explore four main arguments, uh, beginning cause is one, meaning is two, conflict drama, three, and then the fourth is hope and denouement. I think it's pronounced, if I was consistent, uh, I say pensies, I should say denouement, but I'm, uh, I can't do it. Um, so, and, and we're going to get into some of those, but uh, I think it's important to address this, and you address this in the book. You, um, The two conversation partners are you know, Christian theism on the one hand and uh, materialism on the other. And some people might say, well, look, man, that's really not all the options out there. So why are you just limiting yourself? Or, you know, new atheism is, is past. Uh, it's all it's passe now. And, and so, you know, um, I loved your justification for this. Can you go through like why, why did you pick these two as your conversation partners? Obviously, Christian theism, you're, you're a Christian, but why mm-hmm. just uh, materialism, I guess? Yeah. Well, as I acknowledge at the front of the book, this is a limited book. It's not comprehensive. It's not trying to do everything. And I also say, not only am I limiting the scope to these two conversation partners, but even between them, I'm not hitting every topic. Uh, I'm more interested in kind of the shape of each worldview and how as a narrative it functions. And the main reasons for the limitation there are practical. I just think that I know a lot of people, and these are the two issues they're wrestling with. Um, if people are considering a different alternative, then this just wouldn't be the book for them. So it just has a limited scope. But I would say that a lot of the arguments are just pushing against naturalism. So it, it could at least be relevant to other options as well, even if the specific one that I'm really angling for is Christian theism. Yeah, man, I, I found that really helpful that uh, you were upfront about that and – it's, it's just helpful. A lot of times in Christian apologetics, it's like, well, really, there's only two serious options. And it's like, well, that's that's not quite true. Uh, there's a lot of people in the world who would say that's not true. And so I like that you limited the scope and say, hey, look, this is the case. But like you just said, man, I think it is, uh, even if you are uh, of a different religion or considering a different religion, super interesting to think through this. And so if you are, then there's a you need arguments against materialism too, or if you're um, a naturalism. And if you're a naturalist, it's really interesting to think how do Christians think through this kind of stuff? So uh, even though it, it is a more limited scope, I think it's uh, interesting for a wide variety of people. Right. And one of the goals I had in writing it is just to not overstate my case. Yeah. So even along the way, I talk about giving abductive arguments rather than deductive or inductive, and we can talk about that. But I'm basically just angling towards probability. Even mm-hmm. if all the arguments are successful, it just results in probability. So I try to be upfront about not overstating my case or overselling it because I think both you and I have talked about sometimes apologetics can fall into that trap. Yeah. I think it's, it's also interesting that um, the, maybe the, the, the audience that you have in mind are some of your friends and people who are deconstructing. And mm-hmm. usually when they're, they're deconstructing their Christian faith, they're um, going towards a naturalistic uh, view of the world. And so, yeah, man, that's the audience. If that's what's happening, most people aren't deconstructing into a different religion. That's called conversion. So that's that's a different thing. Um, mm-hmm. So I also found that really, uh, really good that you just were upfront about that. I wanted to talk really quickly about abductive reasoning um, and just preempt some stuff from some of the apologetics folks that that do listen. Um, some people have a, a hard time with with abductive reasoning, inference to the best explanation. They say, look, um, yeah, you use abduction maybe in the streets, but you're not bringing that into your Sunday worship. You're not saying, you know, my hope, hope is built on nothing less than uh, the cumulative case arguments or anything like that. Uh, what, what do you make of like the role of reason and abductive, abductive reasoning in apologetics, but having like a, a different kind of certainty when you're preaching or when you're worshiping on Sunday morning? Yeah. Well, maybe I could just define this too for people. You mentioned it, inference to the best expert explanation. So just to flesh that out a little bit in case someone's not up to uh, speed on these things. So deductive and inductive reasoning works from premises to the conclusion. Abductive reasoning starts with a present set of conditions and then 
makes an inference to the best explanation. So it's a weaker form of reasoning. It yields a plausible or maybe probable conclusion, but it's not absolutely certain. The metaphor I often use is if you have a roommate who loves eating Wendy's and you wake up one morning and there's Wendy's leftovers on the counter, it's reasonable to say it's probably from my roommate, but it's not absolutely certain. You know, it could be from somebody else. It could be a coincidence. And um, I think abductive reasoning has strengths and weaknesses. In no way am I trying to say this is the way all apologetics should proceed. Mm-hmm. But I certainly think abductive reasoning has a place, even in the context of apologetics. It's frequently used in that way. The the recent book of, uh, I think it's like 20 or so arguments for the existence of God, which was inspired by Plantinga. A lot of these top level philosophers are using abductive arguments. And I would just say in, in life, human beings make decision based upon abductive reasoning very frequently, arguably more frequently than any other kind of reasoning. You know, um, yeah, think of even in serious spheres of life, like a, a, a doctor or a diagnostician who's trying to figure out the cure for or trying to diagnose a, an illness, a car mechanic who's trying to locate the source of a problem in the car, a jury trying to figure out if someone is guilty or not, whether we trust people, you know, we use abductive reasoning all the time. Now, I do think that um, certainty can come, like in the context of preaching a sermon, there is, we, we do get beyond mere probability in the life of faith. But I would argue that it doesn't follow from that, that abductive reasoning has no role, Mm. because I would say that um, ultimately that certainty will involve other things as well as mere reasoning, um, such as the role of the Holy Spirit and the kind of existential and experiential dynamics of faith. So I would simply maintain this much, that abductive reasoning seems to have a place. Yeah, dude, that's... Go ahead, go ahead. uh, I think some people actually find it more compelling. Um, because it's a little bit less put you like a deer in the headlights. It's a little bit more invitational and less aggressive. Yeah, I think that's a good point too. Um, and, and knowing your audience and like, is this going to, if I come on this strong, are they going to dig in their heels and not want to hear the truth? Like, did, um, I heard, I heard someone once say, uh, it's, it's too important to do that. It's too important to be that aggressive. And you think, well, no, I need to stand for the truth. And it's like, man, you want to persuade, you know, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. That's an important Christian principle of persuasion as well. And I wanted to touch on just a couple more uh, aspects that you focus on in the apologetics before we get in the arguments, including, um, well, you emphasize narrative and the uh, three transcendentals. Can you explain just how, how those are playing into your uh, apologetic? Okay, I'll try to be brief on this, but I, this is something that's really interesting to me, so I can, uh, I'll try to condense it down. Um, so narrative, I think, has an incredible power to convince people, especially when they're in a place of cynicism or deconstruction. And so, because stories tend to be how we make sense of the world. There's a, a quote that says, there have been civilizations without the wheel, but there's never been a civilization without stories. Now, this is how human beings make sense of the world. Think of the role of movies in our culture, for example. So what I do in this book is I take these four classical arguments, as you mentioned, cosmological, teleological, moral, and Christological, and I just situate them as the four anchors that any good story has. Uh, Every good story comes from somewhere, it means something, it has a conflict, it's the moral argument, and it has a hope or denouement. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm trying to uh, utilize the classic arguments, but situate them in that way. I think there can be some value to that. Now, again, that it's the only way to do it. And then um, the good, the true, and the beautiful, the three transcendentals. Um, In the introduction, I give three characteristics of our culture that make it especially important to reach the heart right now. And I draw from Blaise Pascal, who uh, basically, uh, he's the greatest influence on this book, reading through his pensée. Uh, his thoughts. And uh, he, in one of them, he says, basically, because people are afraid that religion might be true, you can't just start by arguing for its truth. He says, you have to start by arguing for its respectability and its desirability, then you get to its truth. And um, this could be overstated, but I do find a lot of um, psychological wisdom in that approach, because the people we're trying to persuade are not robots. You know, it's not just about the logic. And so I try to, with each of the four arguments, I have a part of the chapter that argues 
for what it entails as true. But then I have another part of the chapter that talks about what it entails for what is true, for what is uh, good and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I'm basically saying Christian theism is a more plausible story than naturalism, but it's also just a better story. It's more elegant. It's more dignifying. It's more hopeful. And uh, so I, you know, I, I could say more about why I think that approach is so needed in our culture right now. But that's the basic strategy. Yeah, man. And and it's... um. I'm with you on this. And I, I think of people in my head, I call them more like they're, they're more like modernists to me. And they're like, just the, just the facts, just the truth. And if you focus on this narratival C.S. Lewisian type thing, then you're acting like a postmodernist. And it's, it's not, it's acting like a Christian. You know, we have the four gospels. They are stories, the whole Christian meta narrative of creation, fall, redemption, consummation, or it's, it's, it's thoroughly Christian to to do this. And um, another thing that's really cool is that the transcendentals, the medieval transcendentals were, were focused on a ton uh, by Christians throughout history. And so I think that's another thing. But then um, what's what's cool, what, what you're doing is you also do kind of some axiology of theism. And I just had uh, philosopher Klaus Cray on to talk about this. And it's this burgeoning field of, hey, we're not we're not looking at the truth of theism. We're looking at the axiology of it, should you want it to be true, whether it's, it's true or not. And I thought that was really cool that you, you do that um, in this book a lot. And it's like, Hey, look, even if this weren't true, you should want this to be true. Oh, but it, but it is true. It's, it's a better explanation of the the phenomena we're looking at like math and music. And so I thought that was really cool, man, that, that focusing on the transcendentals kind of brings us into cutting edge stuff and philosophy of religion and situates us within the, the Christian tradition which is awesome. So this is huge. I, I really like this book. Yeah. Oh, thanks a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I totally agree that um, the idea that focusing on narrative and on the transcendentals is not a, a postmodern turn or something like that. This is a classical Christian approach. In fact, one of the things I'm trying to do in this book is have a theological approach to apologetics. I'm trying to retrieve classical categories. And so I'm drawing from Hansers von Balthasar and other Christians who have theologically thought about the transcendentals. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the scripture itself comes to us fundamentally as a narrative. And I've often reflected on the wisdom of God in that, that you know, our, our holy scripture could have been so different. It could yeah. have been in just one language from one time and a set of like propositions. Yeah, just, yep, right. But the, so, you know, if people are uncomfortable with narrative, we probably need to think more just about classic christian um categories yeah. because this is a part of our heritage we can utilize it could have been yeah in in mathematical propositions which apparently are, are beautiful from a lot of these mathematicians that you quote but to me is uh it's hard to find that beauty unless we're looking at fractals like our background or something like that uh-huh. um so with with that in mind man i wanted to get into i wanted to cover at least three of the arguments that you make in uh i think it's chapter two or three it's about um about meaning and it's really cool because in this uh, in this meaning chapter you talk about mathematics and music and love and it's just cool man it's not just like this dry semantics it's like well what is how does mathematics have to do with meaning so uh, I wanted to, to jump in to your argument from math can you give us an overview before we jump in on the, the rabbit trail Okay. Yeah, I know. And this is where I'm with you and just how cool this is, which uh, I didn't expect that. I I didn't, I never enjoyed math growing up and I didn't, I was totally skeptical that you'd ever be able to build an argument for God for math, uh, even an abductive one. But I've just, I was just amazed as I was reading in the philosophy of math, reading about these famous mathematicians. So briefly situating it, this is within the realm of uh, the teleological argument or just instinct to perceive meaning and specifically transcendent meaning in the world, just like a, a story has meaning because it has an author, if our mm-hmm. world has transcendent meaning. So I, I canvas some, a broader teleological argument, and then I say, let's look at some specific features of our world and see if they suggest meaning. And the three I look at are math, music, and love. Um, the argument from math basically works like this. I say there are three features of math that are curious on a naturalistic worldview, and that theism, in some respects, Christian theism particularly, though with this book, I'm more just looking at something other than naturalism. Mm-hmm. So theism would be a good candidate, but also Platonism and some other options, gives you a better explanatory framework for. 
So again, I'm not saying this proves that God exists. I'm saying it's a better explanation, a better explanatory framework. The three features of math are its permanence and durability, its beauty, and then thirdly, its applicability to the natural realm or its usefulness. And I say on all three of these, it's really surprising and curious on a naturalistic worldview that we could discover math to be these three things. So we can walk through any of those you want. Yeah, I want to walk through all of them if we can. Um, I really like the, so the first one is really fascinating to me um, because it it has to do with um, the mind of God. And look, if mathematical numbers are real, if they're real objects, if there are such things as mathematical objects, then it's really weird to think that they just exist in some kind of platonic realm. Like where is the number one? And uh, philosophy professors will do this all the time. They'll write one on the board and then they'll erase it and go, oh my gosh, I just destroyed one. Well, no, I didn't. That was the numeral one. And it was a a representative or whatever. There's a trope or something. But the number one is still out there somewhere. And so um, what I found really cool in your research was that you said, uh, and you give quotes for it too, that most mathematicians are actually Platonists concerning mathematical objects, meaning they they believe that they really exist. And I think it was something like 65%, uh, which is wild, man. Can you explain like, okay, what? Why would uh, being a realist about numbers, um, I mean, I kind of gave it away, but why Why would that lead to, why would that make more sense on theism than naturalism? Okay, and I'll just define the terms here too, because, so mathematical realism is the idea that mathematical truths exist independently of human minds. And then Platonism is often used for that as well, though some, I've argued that Platonism is a subset within mathematical realism. And it is, so that's not the, tra- that's the historic view, going back to people like Plato and Pythagoras and St. Augustine and so forth, that mathematical truths are necessary truths. Mm-hmm. It, uh, two plus three equals five is true in every possible world. Um, that's not the trend. The trend is against that today. It's trendy to not be, uh, to be yeah. some other non-realist, and there's all kinds of non-realist options. But still, despite the trendiness, there, the majority view is, is mathematical realism. So you could summarize this by saying it's like um, math, mathematical truths. You're not a, a an architect building them. You're a, an archaeologist discovering them. And so I walk through these different famous mathematicians who speak of discovering Roger Penrose, many others who speak of mathematics as an alternate realm or an alternate world. So there's like the material realm and then there's the mathematical realm. And people, these mathematicians use these fascinating images like entering an ice palace to do math because mathematical truths are so different than the material realm. They're boxy and firm and objective and and, uh, sort of binding. And the material realm is always in flux. It's not like that. So the reason that a thought experiment I like to do to show why it's sort of an odd uh, feature of a naturalistic worldview is if the entire physical universe were to collapse into non-being, would it still be true that two plus three equals five? And if so, why? And the reason that's an interesting way to get into it is because it starts to provoke this question of, well, what is it that makes that permanently or necessarily true? And uh, if the physical realm is all there is, then why would a truth like that persist uh, despite the absence of the physical realm? Where would it get that kind of binding nature? And again, that doesn't prove God, but God or something else like God, something supernatural could provide a context to understand that on naturalism. And I I quote so many of these professional philosophers of math to this effect. It's just really odd. It's like, where did this come from? Yeah. I like the, I like the, um, the oddness of it. Cause it really, you're, you're comparing two worldviews and you're saying, look, we're both looking at this phenomena. One, it's super duper odd. And okay. If you want to believe that you can believe that it's just weird on this one. It actually makes sense. And it's not that weird. It, It totally flows from the idea of a transcendent, uh, mind uh who is not um a physical thing and so you could say you know if you're a conceptualist or a conventionalist or something like that about mathematical objects then you'd have to say something weird like hey even if just the earth exploded then two plus two doesn't equal four anymore because it's dependent on the human mind math is is a a aspect of just human thought and so it's like yeah so that's a weird thing to say that if the earth blows up then 
Jupiter is, is neither one nor two nor three or whatever planets. So yeah, man, it's, it is weird. It's, it's cool to think about that. So I'm with you. I think it's right. I think it's cool. Just maybe getting more speculative now, because you can, you can hash out God's relation to mathematics in a bunch of different ways. Do you have a particular theory, man? Do you think that, that uh, do you go in with Augustine and say like mathematical objects are just God's thoughts or what, what do you think about that? Yeah, there have been lots of different views on this. And William Lane Craig, who's a great contemporary philosopher, has a book called God Overall, where he gets into all this. People, if they're interested in chasing this down, could look at uh, that book, would introduce them well to the options here. I'm not dogmatic about this, but mm -hmm. I incline toward what I perceive as kind of the mainstream, pre-modern, classical view of ideas or uh, of mathematical truths as the thoughts or ideas of God sustained awesome. by God's mental activity. Um, when you start to get into that, you know, this is what happens often in these things. I'm more certain of like step one and then yeah. step two, I'm like stepping gingerly at, you know, I'm, I'm less certain the further we go. Right. But the, but the thing is, theism gives you the options. Mm -hmm. you know? You've got some options to work with on naturalism. It's like, I don't even know what the options are. Yeah, there's like, yeah, again, you have to say there's an abstract realm or it's dependent on us. Yeah, I'm with you on that totally. And um, I'm writing a paper on that this semester for Paul Gould about uh, God's thoughts and stuff like that. So I'm deep into it. It's, it is a scary place to be. Um, but I'm with you. I think that uh, most, most Christians in the, in the tradition have thought that, yes, it's, it's God's thoughts. I think Craig is really sharp and he makes some good points, but I think ultimately he's wrong on that. But that's neither here nor there. Um, so we talk about mathematical realism, how it makes more sense on theism. Uh, and is there anything here that would that would um, point more towards Christian theism than uh, bare brute theism? Or um, should we wait till the rest of the argument? It does. It is interesting. Now, I, I don't leverage this point as a strong argument to like call someone to make a movement in their sure. thinking, but I point to it as an intriguing thing to be explored further. The doctrine of the Trinity. Mm -hmm. um, it, in some sense, though we recognize God is qualitatively different than any other thing, but in some sense, we affirm God is both one and three. And that means a Christian theistic perspective is going to have a unique perspective on numbers in some way. And uh, because we're going to say that numbers, in some sense, are more real than space-time. Uh, numbers, in, in some sense, predate um, physical reality. Um, so, you know, and then the historic Christian instinct has been to locate uh, the sort of mental realm of truths specifically in the word or the logos, so the yeah. second member of the Trinity. And I've got a, a quote from uh, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, who later became Pope Benedict, uh, Benedict about um, about that. So I think it's intriguing to think um, you could you could just chalk this down as a point for further exploration. You know, okay, how how are we going to parse this in terms of the doctrine of the Trinity? How will that be relevant, um, and what unique insights might that yield? Yeah. And this is another uh, virtue of your book is that it's not um, it doesn't you're, you're not dogmatic about these particular points. It's saying, hey, look, we're, we're comparing two different conceptions of reality. This conception makes uh, more sense of the phenomena than this one does. And then I think it's cool because now people should go and find out, hey, what do you think, though? Like, what is God's relation to mathematics? So it draws you, I think Lewis would say, like further in, deeper up or up. Mm -hmm. further up and deeper in. Um, and so that's really cool, man. It, it's, you're very good with um, exegesis and research. And I think those probably come from your time as a, as a Christian theologian, but it's cool that you're applying this to modern uh, scientific texts and stuff like that as well. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just good, dude. I, I'm trying not to like flatter you too much, but it's, it's really good. So we got mathematical realism. Um, the second one is, is beauty, math, mathematics and beauty. And um, I was really, intrigued by this because I've been hearing this a lot from non-Christians as they talk about math, as I listen mm -hmm. to different podcasts and talk um, like Lex Friedman. Uh, are you familiar with, with Lex Friedman at all? Uh, not very much. No. Yeah. He's got a, a pretty popular podcast. Um, it's called the Lex Friedman podcast now, but um, he is a uh, scientist. He's a, a artificial intelligence guy and he talks with a lot of mathematicians and he just always talks about beauty 
uh, and he's got this really mono, monotone, monotonal uh, Russian voice. So it's really funny to hear him talk about beauty in one tone. <laughs> but uh, but he talks about beauty and mathematics all the time. So I was totally primed for your chapter where you're talking about mathematics and beauty. But for someone who doesn't think that way, who grew up like you and I, who didn't enjoy math and think of it beautiful, can you help us? Like, why is math beautiful? Why are people thinking that? Yeah, it is very difficult to describe. Maybe the best way to get into this is to describe the experiences and the testimonies of people who are smarter than all of us. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> These professional yeah. working mathematicians who over and over and over talk about in the context of discovery, you're like St. Anselm before he discovered the ontological argument. You know, you can't eat, you can't sleep, you're on the verge of something. And then there's the breakthrough moment and there's this sense of ecstasy. And then there's this sense of transcendence that often comes with it. A lot of mathematicians speak of discovering mathematical truths as not only breaking into an alternate realm, yeah. but breaking into an alternate realm that seems to convey some sense of transcendence or significance or, or beauty. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of these mathematicians I'm quoting is talking about, he tries to give criteria for beauty and he talks about just the, the proportions. He talks about the degree of strangeness in a mathematical formula, which is interesting. That's got to be a little weird to be beautiful. And he talks about um, the wide ranging applicability of it. So one of them talks about the uh, Pythagorean theorem, a squared plus B squared equals C squared. He talks about how it's so simple, but it applies so broadly. Mm -hmm. And he considers that a feature of beauty. Um, it's very hard to convey. It's kind of like saying, well, why is music beautiful? You know, yeah. very hard to describe that. But at the top level of math, people often experience that. Maybe some of us, maybe even at lower levels of math, could have some context for that, where we see that something just seems fitting mm -hmm. in some way, or it's it's surprisingly applicable in some way, yeah. or just something about it is is pleasing to discover. And again, here the reasoning is modest and soft, and it's abductive, and just saying, okay, again, a curiosity on naturalism. It's like, wow, interesting. It seems like. I use the metaphor of an invisible castle rising up around us. Yeah. You can't see it, but it's there. Just like, it's like, wow, there's all this invisible truth around us. We can like discover um, where did it come from, you know, but in a theistic worldview, you can at least wonder about this. Maybe this is one avenue through which the supernatural realm, we're sort of accessing it or it's, yeah. it's touching our world in some way, just like I argue after this with music. And um, for people who have tasted the vividness of discovery of truth, whether mathematical or other, um, I, I personally do find that a pretty compelling framework for understanding that experience, for why it is so exciting. It's also just a lot more of an exciting framework. It's a lot more mm -hmm. of an interesting framework. It opens up the possibilities, uh, arguably. So... Um, yeah, so the, the argument there just kind of turns upon the recognition of the beauty and then the posing the question of, well, what's the best way to understand this? And it sort of is just, again, the modest reasoning, we're just saying, it just seems very odd on naturalism. It seems very curious. But if math is the thoughts of God, well, that would kind of make sense of that experience. Yeah. And, and to go back to the, the transcendentals that like you, we can talk about them separately, but you know, truth is beautiful and good and goodness is the, the true and it is and so there's there are like three perspectives on one another and so uh looking at at god who those seem to be attributes of god yeah wouldn't it wouldn't be as surprising to say math is beautiful because math is good and true and it tells us mm. i think there is something to that i've appreciated about math and like you i've got into the philosophy of math and i love thinking about that but just don't ask me to do a lot of equations or anything like that and actually do the math. But um, it, yeah, it's, it's not, it makes more sense that on this view of the world with a transcendent God, we would be able to find transcendent truths, mathematical truths, and that they would be beautiful. And that um, this, this kind of gets into the applicability in Wigner, but, and that we'd be able to access them. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, that's interesting too. Can you talk about like our access to mathematical truths? Yeah, this is one of the things that Roger Penrose talks about a lot. He's got the the three realms of reality. He talks about the platonic realm, the mathematical realm, the mental realm, so consciousness. This is another very intriguing thing to wonder about on a naturalistic worldview is consciousness. Totally 
separate thing. And then the physical realm of objects. And what he emphasizes is the mysteriousness of the contact between these three different realms Mm -hmm. in all cases and in all directions. And in his book, I think it's called Shadows of the Mind. It's a fascinating book. Just towards Mm -hmm. the end, a couple pages where he's going on about just how mysterious it is that each of these realms could ever contact with you. Like, what would be the bridge? You know, how'd you get from one to the other? And it actually, math is one of those things where you just sort of take it for granted. You think, well, of course we can think about mathematical truths. Right. But when you actually press into it, it actually is really mysterious to wonder how does the physical organ we call the brain access that? Yeah. And uh, so that that's another one of those curiosities where um, a theistic worldview or other supranaturalistic worldviews could have some categories, could have some options for how that could work. So like a lot of Christian theologians have, drawn have kind of leveraged the idea of creation in God's image because for pre-modern theologians that idea had a lot to do with our rationality that was a huge emphasis of what that is so being made in God's image will do a lot of legwork for saying how can human beings um, connect with the thoughts of God and there's other ways that can be parsed out but that's you know there's there's um, land to be explored there on naturalism, uh, again, it looks like these things are, are just more interesting and more curious. And you just sort of wonder, like, I don't know how do these three realms intersect with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I think that's cool. It's like there's this trail leading off and up into the mountains and it's beautiful. And then there's this other one that's a, like a dead end. And it's like, hey, I don't know how you got here. And that's not to, again, I don't want to overstate my case or or, uh, or get out over my skis, but it's like... Mm-hmm. One of these makes better sense of this. And uh, yeah, I think I think uh, the image of God like totally makes sense. God made us to think his thoughts after him. And if the truths of mathematics are God's thoughts, then it would make sense whether he pre-programs them in or allows us to abstract them out of creation. We look at two apples and we see that or something. There's a lot of different options and there's awesome debates to be had there as well. Um, but that's over on one side of the of the story. Um and then you put all three of those together, and it it makes this the case even more and more compelling that um, should be pointing you towards theism, and I think particularly Christian theism as well. But uh, Gavin, as you think about this, can um, can a Muslim or a practicing uh, could could a Jewish um, practitioner also use these arguments, or or what do you make of that? I think so, and I think this is one of those points where I'd say. Although the book is framed in terms of Christian theism versus naturalism, <coughs> excuse me, mm-hmm. because that's where it eventually gets to, um, for the vast majority of the book, it's actually not about Christian theism specifically. So I really do think the book could have a broader relevance. But yes, I think so. I think the way I think is um, ultimately, I do think there are reasons to affirm the Trinity. Yeah. But along the way, a lot of the things that will gesture you to or towards God generally or something supernatural, something beyond space-time generally, aren't going to have the same level of specificity for how far they get you. So a lot of these arguments are going to be pointing you just to God generically or, in many cases, just to something. Like at this point, all I'm saying is there's something transcendent and fixed and supernatural. Um, Could be God, could be something else. Yeah. Sweet, man. Um, Another interesting point about this is... um, Penrose was on Unbelievable with uh, William and Craig, and they were talking about the three worlds. And Craig, really interestingly, started sounding like a theistic conceptualist and saying, well, we'll put them in the mind of God. And it's like, oh, man, Dr. Craig, man, you're not uh, that's not your position. So I thought it was really funny that that uh, he used that to try and convince uh, Penrose. Um, but, yeah, like like you said, the three worlds make sense in a on a theistic if if the world is a theistic world, then these three worlds of consciousness and mathematics and the physical world can totally make sense. Yeah. Exactly. And that, and that touches on the third of the three features of math, its usefulness, because the way I put that is, and this is, this is the main argument most people, I'm not actually familiar with too many who have argued from the beauty or durability of math, mm-hmm. but the usefulness of math, that's the common argument in apologetics. Okay. Eugene Wigner wrote a famous article in 1960. It, Albert Einstein and others before him said the same thing. Basically, just 
it's extraordinarily coincidental that math works so well, that mental truths we discover map onto physical reality so exactly. And we can come up with these equations and they just happen to work. They happen to connect with physical reality so perfectly. Yeah. And again, it's that curiosity of like, why would this be? The way I put it in the book is that it's almost like ideas and objects fit together like two puzzle pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, mental truths and physical objects just connect, they intersect. And it's the kind of thing we might take for granted, but when you stop and think about it, you'd wonder, well, why is that the case? And again, on naturalism, that would be more of a curiosity, so far as I can see, on theism, Christian theism, maybe some other options, there'd be a lot more categories you'd have to try to make sense of why it is that way. Yeah, that that one is so interesting to me. And I think about it almost every time I drive over a bridge, where I'm just like, man, I'm so glad... <laughs> that the laws of mathematics are applicable here because I needed to drive over that bridge. And it first hit me when I was making a toothpick bridge in uh, like home Mac or something like that in high school. And they told us about how durable and strong triangles are. And so I made my whole toothpick bridge, just triangles everywhere. I could put a triangle and it wasn't super great. I ended up winning this contest. It was the lightest and thickest because I just had all these triangles, but then like this weird abstract object, mathematical object, uh, I'd say is like, so applicable that it helped me win a contest in high school when I put it, when I put a bunch of toothpicks in that, in those shapes. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it is really fascinating and gives you like a a sense of, of awe and wonder that the world is this crazy place and it's easy to take it for granted, but it's also, it's, it's fantastic when you can take the time to think about it, how crazy the world actually is. Right. And the way, I mean, uh, again, not trying to leverage these arguments too ambitiously. So I put it in a personal form for me personally, what it has resulted in is that I think a Christian theistic way of looking at the world uh, has greater allowance for elegance in what we perceive in the world, because we're able to see, I mean, if you believe in a, a kind of high view of math, you're a mathematical realist, you're open to the possibility of mathematical truth being an avenue of transcendence. Um, you, you see, you, you take the word miracle seriously mm-hmm. when these secular philosophers of math use the word miracle, and Einstein uses that word to describe the usefulness of math, how much it works, that it's miraculous, that's yeah. their term. You kind of receive all that, and you can say, wow, it's it's really, um, you're, you're in a certain way enabled to have a bit more of an exalted view of human thought and, and human mental discovery. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's reasonable to say because there's so many of the naturalists, and I quote Bertrand Russell a lot, who, who acknowledge that. And they say like, yeah, um, on a naturalistic worldview, you have to uh, appreciate the discover- human mental activity a little differently. Yeah. Um, it's not discovering something that's eternal. It's not dis- it's not tapping into transcendence in the same way. Yeah. And so that's kind of where I come back to is like it theism enables you to appreciate human mental activity as this really exciting uh avenue. I mean, just think how cool that is to be the first mathematician to discover some mathematical truth and you realize I'm not inventing something. Mm-hmm. I'm discovering something that um has already been thought by an eternal mind. Yeah. Like whether that's true or not, that is super cool. You know? Yeah. I think Evan too, um, sometimes when that happens, and and I think this is probably why mathematicians feel this way and I don't, but in some level, when you're doing what God made you to do, it resonates with you. And there's something you're, you're tapping into the transcendent, whatever it is, you're feeling like this is my telos. This is what's, and you can hear it from these mathematicians. And I think that's another difference uh, in comparative worldviews here, that when you're living in that zone of what God made you to do, and he made us all with different traits and characteristics to do different things, it taps into something deep. And it's not just this spandrel of an accidental uh, adaptation that we got from evolution. I think you quote Stephen uh, Jay Gould in talking about like the spandrels of, of human thought and, and stuff like that. That yeah, maybe we can we can do mathematics because uh, the rising tide lifts all ships, and you know we needed to find where berries were, and so we had this abstract reasoning. And oops, we can actually do mathematics too. It's like yeah, that that's something. That's that's cool. I guess it's definitely not as cool as thinking I was made to do mathematics. I was made mm-hmm. to do this, and uh, I feel God's splendor when I'm doing it. 
Yeah, totally. I mean, that's a huge point. This this gets a, this anticipates the arguments for music and love a little bit, where I really get into evolutionary psychology. But they're relevant here too. A, a, a Christian account of human thinking and and human rationality is going to feel very different because, like Pascal called human beings a thinking reed. Yeah. So he's talking that. about how we're, we're, you know, and he has a very high view of reason. Reason for both reason and love in a Trinitarian worldview, go back to the second and third members of the Trinity. Many theologians have spoken of the second member as the reason of God, the third member of the Trinity as the love between the Father and the Son. Mm -hmm. And obviously we want to be careful not to assume that our usage of those terms maps onto God precisely. But um, it's an exalted view of human thought. It's not just an evolutionary spin-off that because animals were trying to survive, we sort of built up these mechanisms and as a byproduct, now we can do other things. Yeah. That's what it is on an evolutionary framework if evolution is all you have. Yeah. Dude, just a side note on, on Pascal's thinking read, that I've, I've been thinking about that for years. It's such a great line because um, you know, his conception of, of his anthropology is so fascinating where he thinks like we're right in the middle of the huge cosmos and the tiny little microscopic, but like we're this reed and we we have these destructible bodies that could be killed by a microscopic virus. And yet we can think about the beauties of the universe and we're made in the yeah. image of God. And yet it's like this thinking reed. It's so cool, man. It's It's fascinating. I know this one of, I told you how I read through all of the, the, not all of, but most of the Ponce in preparation for this book. I love Pascal. He's so interesting. Mm -hmm. One of them is he talks about how thought is greater than place, mm. which I'd never thought about this contrast, but he says by place, I am grabbed by the universe, yeah. but by thought, I grab the universe. Yeah. And what he's saying is by, by thinking, um, you are able to sort of in a certain sense, transcend some of your limitations as, yeah. as a finite creature. And again, it's this exalted view of human reason. Yeah. I love that line as well. And I, sometimes I think about that and I'm like, well, I can think about Mars. So like Mars could, could crush me or whatever like that, but dude, I can think, I can grasp you and maybe I don't grasp it fully, but yeah, I, I use that sometimes to, to uh, bolster my, my Imago day when I'm thinking uh, the vastness of the universe and it's collapsing in on me. Um, well, dude, let's jump into to music and love. Um, these are these are both really fascinating. I just I want to uh, bring up Cre uh, Peter Kreef's. You call it a tongue in cheek argument, and uh, and and it is, but it's great. He says uh, there is the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, therefore, there must be a God. You either see this or you don't. And it's tongue in cheek, but there's some some truth. There. Can you can you flesh this out for us? Yeah, yeah. That uh, I love Peter Kreeft, and that is one testimony of a number of others where I'm sharing stories about how, in some way or another, um, music conveys a sense of transcendence to people, and it is is a sociological fact that some mm. people become believers in God or in something supernatural because of that feeling of transcendence. Now, how we interpret that sociological fact is another matter, but it is just fact that like this happens. And so it's worth at least asking, you know, is there something to Kreef's argument? Like, is there, um, is that a legitimate phenomenon or why does that phenomenon happen? So I start off this section by talking about Charles Taylor and his, he, he talks a lot. He's the, um, you know, famously has uh, written a great deal about um, secularization, his famous book, A Secular Age. Mm -hmm. And one of the things he talks about is the arts, what happens to the arts in this weird turn in human history we call secularization, which is totally unprecedented. Yeah. And he talks about how the arts, so formerly in pre-modern context, the arts were, um, so the arts would include music, um, architecture, so forth, um, paintings, you know. Um, they formerly were perceived to be conduits of transcendence. Mm. So like a lot of famous music, like Mozart's Requiem is all about death. You know, a lot of famous music is about something of, of transcendent significance yeah. and, and it's about final judgment, the Requiem. Um, but in a, and so we, I give these various testimonies of secular people basically saying, uh, experiencing the arts in a secular context after you've no longer come to believe in anything ultimately transcendent, you feel nostalgic. You feel mm. like you're you're missing out on something. You feel like it's a shell of what it was. So that's kind of the way I, I get into it, just to show, like, historically, this association between the arts, such as music and transcendence, has a lot of backing to it. So it's at least worth exploring. Like, is there anything to that? Yeah. 
Yeah. And um, I was really hoping that you would do this and you did. Uh, you went into uh, Tolkien's um, universe and uh, Lewis's uh, universe as well and, and talked about Elu- Elu- Eluvatar. I always forget the names. Mm-hmm. But um, Tolkien, both Tolkien and Lewis uh, describe their creation of their worlds uh, through music. And, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke and it was. He said, let there be light. And so we have this this speech act theory that we can use. But I I was wondering about, you know, should we think more like Lewis and Tolkien or is that just a little bit too much? And so, man, I just want to get your thoughts on that. Like, do you think God sung the universe into into being? I think that's a wonderful way to envision a Christian account of creation. Mm. And it's the classical Christian instinct. What Lewis is doing with in the magician's nephew, when Aslan sings the world into being and the stars join in with Aslan as he's singing, what Tolkien is doing in the Silmarillion with the angels singing and making melody and harmony. And that creates reality. The music goes out into the void and it was not void. That's mm-hmm. Tolkien's line. That's a, Christian imagination of a classical theological view that can be located in Augustine and Aquinas and others, where the angels sort of govern over creation. And there's the line in the book of Job about the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy when God is laying the foundation of the earth. And again, wanting to be careful in exactly how we envision that. But the the basic idea is, as Peter Kreeft puts it, for a a Christian theist, music is a language. Yeah. It's the original language, music. It's, it, it communicates meaning. And um, what I basically try to do is to say that, okay, that's one explanatory framework for the feeling of transcendence of, that music conveys. And then I go through the naturalistic framework and talk about evolutionary psychology, and that's where evolutionary spandrels come in, which is mm-hmm. an unintentional byproduct of the evolutionary process. Basically, what it all boils down to, to skip all the details, is for the naturalist, the feeling of transcendence with music is an illusion. Our brain is tricking us. It's it's tapping into something that evolved for a different reason, like pattern recognition, for instance, and it's accessing that. Yeah. Doesn't doesn't Pinker call it like uh, cheesecake or something like that? Yeah. Auditory cheesecake is that. What Steven Pinker, who's a secular thinker, calls it. Um, yeah, and, and that's exactly the view. It's tricking our brains. It's yeah. And I, cheesecake, because, um, you know, from the evolutionary uh, biological standpoint, we didn't evolve to eat cheesecake. We evolved to eat uh, blueberries and all these different uh, things that all come to uh, a head in cheesecake, which is like this explosion of flavors hitting on all of our different senses. And so music would be like that. It's we weren't. We didn't evolve to to know music, but to hear gossip on some views, or to listen to birds, or something like that. But in music, it's like an overload of our auditory uh, ability, and so it sounds really cool to us. But it's like eating cheesecake. Exactly. Exactly. It's it, it's not uh, something we evolved for, but the things we evolved for it taps into. So it's a a spinoff. Um, yeah, and it really is. I mean, it's hard to embrace that while deeply loving music and not feel a little disappointed seriously that's it like it's not there's nothing there's no actual transcendence it's just think of it like this i'm i'm feeling uh during my favorite movie soundtrack at the most climactic moment i'm feeling stirred up in my emotions and in my instincts in response to this because that helped animals survive yeah back behind me that's it nothing more and that so you think of that and you lay that in comparison to the Lewis and Tolkien imagination of music as the primordial language, mm. the, the the language of the angels as they shouted for joy at creation. You think, wow, um, you know, it, it's not just which is more plausible. It's also which can you really live with and make peace with? Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. one is pretty depressing. Well, and, and that livability aspect is really interesting for me as well, because um, I know that we want to, we don't get over our skis or anything like that, but like genuinely good luck thinking that while you're rocking out to your favorite songs, like seriously, like it's really hard to do, to hold those two intention. Mm-hmm. I love this song because I'm like pre-programmed to like other things. And this is hitting on all of those, but I'm still enjoying it. And I just can't help it. Just like this raw pragmatism. Yeah. It's, it's weird. Thinking about God being um, 
conveying meaning in such like I love speech actor. We talked a lot about the authorial analogy. And I think the same things at play here. God God created with words, but if God conveyed meaning with words in such a way that he created the world by that way, or um, you know, there's all these songs. So even if he didn't create the world through this musical uh song like Tolkien and Lewis would say, still there's a huge place for conveying meaning in the Psalms, for instance. So mm-hmm. God does like music. And when we're doing that, we're like tapping into our creators, the, the, the heart of our creator. We're conveying meaning like uh, we were designed to do, like the the thing in which the person in which we've been made to emulate and to image. And it, that's awesome, dude. It gets me so fired up. Like, it's really cool. It kind of makes me think like uh, about the objectivity of beauty in music. And if some songs are just objectively not beautiful, mm-hmm. um, and it's speculation, man, but do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Are there, is there some music that conveys meaning better or more beautifully than others? Yes. I, this is something I get into a little bit in the, uh, in the chapter about th- this whole question of musical meaning. Yeah. How, how does this work? Because this is something philosophers of music really puzzle over. And it's a major question. It's like what people notice is music does seem to have this ability to convey meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to convey meaning in a non-representational manner. So music that doesn't have lyrics can communicate emotions without any lyrics or words. Music somehow communicates. Um, I think it was uh, Felix Mendelssohn, who's a musical composer, and he said, to me, music is a more precise language than words mm. and letters. And so he's basically saying music. So, for example, music can feel triumphant. Music can feel melancholy. Music can convey emotions. It can convey things that people understand. But philosophers really puzzle over how does it do that? And again, it seems to me that theism is the kind of worldview that's going to give you some options to start to parse that out, to start to explain that, to start to try to get that. Whereas naturalism, this is going to be more curious um, and I, again, I was skeptical that a good argument could be made here, but the more you get into it, the more you start to realize this whole issue of musical meaning is actually really um, complicated and really interesting. And it, you really do sort of wonder, like, how does it have this ability to communicate so powerfully? Yeah. And on, again, on a theistic perspective, it makes total sense because music is a language. Yeah. Um, on a naturalistic worldview, you know, you, you could come up with some explanation, but it looks like you're going to it's going to be a little more curious. And from my vantage point, you're going to be a little more hard pressed for what you're going to come up with. Yeah. And I think another uh, virtue of this, of this approach uh, of comparative worldviews here is that, look, if you, if you want to take uh, music more seriously, then come on over on this side. Like if you want to be able to do that, if that's something that you enjoy, if you want to take mathematics more seriously, if you want to, or as seriously as you already do take them, right? So maybe you already love math. Maybe you already love music. Most people love music. And then just bringing up, hey, look, you got a problem here because your love for music doesn't make as much sense on your naturalistic, you know, um, presuppositions. Like it, it, it makes more sense over here. And so let go of one, but let go of the naturalism and, and hold on to your love of music. That's a really good thing. And from, from our perspective, that's something that, that images God. Like you are bearing image, uh, bearing witness to the creator of your soul when you say that music is good. Maybe even if, if Pearl Jam is good. I don't know. That's still up for debate. <laughs> yeah, the fierce debates will be in which music conveys transcendence. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, Roger Scruton, I, I love Roger. It's kind of cliche to like Roger Scruton if you're a Christian, but um, he's awesome. He's the man. And he's like, it's classical. It's classical music and classical architecture. Um, Gavin, I wonder if we could just jump in, uh, maybe you could just wave at the uh, the argument from love. Um, it's It's been getting a little bit more play than the others. And so I wanted to spend more time on math and, and uh, music. But um, how, about, how about love on a, on a Christian worldview or a Christian theistic worldview, or theism? Um, instead of on, on naturalism. Yeah. This is another one of those things where these abductive arguments, the way they could be framed is kind of like a, not a, like, here's the premise and I'm going to show you why you must go to the conclusion, but it's more like putting it like this, like, look at the things you already assume, look at Mm -hmm. the things you already believe. Um, These things all, these things are really curious. It almost feels like you're borrowing from a theistic worldview in in these values because um, love like, 
uh, music, it will be explained reductively by evolutionary psychology on a naturalistic worldview. It's just about what helped animals survive. Mm -hmm. And it really is a pretty dark and grisly tunnel to start walking down if you chase that down to its full implications for what that means for your children, for the people you love the most. That is tough. I mean, that, that really starts to, to sting if you really chase down the implications because you realize the feelings of transcendence and significance and meaning that we associate with love mm. um, are also illusory. They're a deception. They just helped animals survive. That's why you have those feelings. And that's brutal. It's a brutalizing uh, thing. So the way I sum it up is to say theism or some other supernaturalistic alternative might enable you to live more comfortably within your own humanity. Mm -hmm. Naturalism is going to start to make you question your deepest instincts that meaning, love, rationality, music, these things. I, I, I have to kind of question, like, how are these triggering me? Is this tricking my brain because of my evolutionary history? So I, I start off this whole section by quoting Frozen 2 because I have a five year I did see that, man. That was wild. <laughs> and uh, it's just one example of how common it is for human beings to intuit that love is significant because there's the scene where Olaf is melting away. And actually, there's some interesting philosophy in Frozen 2, actually. But the, the, the song earlier had explored kind of themes of permanence. Does anything really stay permanent? And Olaf says, I found out something that is permanent. Love. Hmm. And then he melts away. And I just draw attention to that's like extremely common in music and movies. Yeah. We just have this sense that love matters. Hmm. But again, it, it, you know, the way Jerry Walls summarizes it is in either worldview, you either have death is stronger than love or love is stronger than death. Hmm. And it's an either or so far as I can see. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that, man. And I, I think uh, when it comes to love too, we can, start making a stronger case for like a, a Trinitarian theism. Uh, Swinburne's done this and um, a, a, a Trinitarian God, multiple persons of the Trinity of the Godhead can be in a loving relationship forever. Whereas maybe perhaps a, a Unitarian God had to begin loving after he created finite creatures in which to love. And so it might not be love might be not love might not be as fundamental to reality on a non Trinitarian view of, of, god than on a trinitarian view and i think that's kind of cool too yeah totally yeah again it goes back to the the way theologians have spoken of the second and third members of the trinity at times as not just the son and the spirit but at times the word mm. and love um yeah. and there's a whole world to explore there in terms of just um again thinking of some aspects of our creation as pointers you know yeah. why do we tell stories like the story the beauty and the beast the whole point of the story beauty and the beast if you think about it is fascinating it's that love overcomes death there's something in the human heart that longs for that that's why we tell stories about that so the question is where does that longing come from what's the best explanation for it and what's the explanation that's most desirable and both of those questions are really important yeah Man, I love that. Um, I, yeah, the signpost kind of stuff, Lewis and and C. Stephen Evans and 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 others. Um, it's it's huge, man. It's so good. Um, what I what I also appreciate. I've said it before already, but there's there's a lot of room to explore. Like it's a welcome welcome in. Come explore. Come check this out, and then keep going. And each one of the arguments is really like it's a welcome mat. Come on in and explore this over here on this worldview it's rich it's enchanted all those kind of things that are um it hits on a lot of different uh, avenues it hits on a lot of the people who really want truth man we think this is true people who are looking for beauty this is a beautiful conception of the world and i think it is the true one people looking for goodness in a, in a dark world this is come over here and experience this stuff and stay a while come check this out think about god's relation to mathematics and beauty and love and you, you're not going to find that on the other side. And, and then once you start adding them together, so, so maybe you become a, a non-realist concerning mathematical objects, but you got a lot of more work to do. How about music? How about, you know, it, you got to tie all these things together and create this worldview while there's one sitting over here for you that's, that's already been there. 
Yeah, yeah, totally. And then when you get into morality, which is mm. chapter three is really an extension in some respects of the same kinds of reasoning, yeah. where then then that's the one that stings the most mm. is when you lose the ability to understand good and evil as objectively binding categories in the way that we intuit at the level of conscience, yeah. which naturalism vitiates. And that's another one that really pushes this whole line of thinking even deeper. Yeah. And I, um, man, the whole, you, you quote from Lewis a ton, which is so fantastic, but uh, another great point that you draw out and, and Lewis draws out in, in mere Christianity is you, that's actually not livable. You bump into someone on the street and who owes who an apology, whose fault was that? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh no, you are. And, uh, yeah, when you start naturalizing those kind of things, I think you can to a certain extent, but but not fully. I don't think you can ever get past the the ought of of life. Um, so, dude, this this book is huge. So, I recommend uh, everyone why God makes sense in a world that doesn't. The beauty of Christian theism by Dr. Gavin Ortland. Uh, Gavin, man, where can people find you if they want to hear uh, more from you? Uh, well, uh, I have a website, GavinOrland.com. That could point people to some books and other things. I do blogs now and again. But the main thing would be on YouTube. I have a, a channel called Truth Unites, and people could subscribe and follow. I put out videos on ecumenical dialogue and theology, uh, apologetics, other theological or devotional topics. So that'd be a good connection point. Awesome. Um, yeah, and I've, I've benefited from a lot of those, uh, even like book reviews of, of Pinker stuff, too. That's been great. Um, if someone wanted to go to your church, like, how would they find that? Oh, they're not allowed. We don't let any <laughs> non-BAP. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, uh, we are in Ojai, which is uh, kind of near Ventura, Oxnard, that area of Southern California as you're pushing north of L.A. Um, so people would be welcome to join us any Sunday, 10 a.m., Awesome. Uh, where yeah, there are, our, our website would have all the details. Okay, huge. So yeah, read this book. Come over to to Christian Theism, and then start going to his church. That'd be huge. Um, Gavin, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. It's it's been really fun talking with you. And uh, folks, we covered like a very very small portion of this book, so I recommend you grab it and uh, dive in deeper. Um, thanks again, Gavin. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory. <music>